Uh, just a reminder, if you missed some of the Sundays, because we are in the last week of our Faith and Science series, if you missed any of them, we've been posting the audio. We have a Brandywine Education podcast feed. Uh, you can find it on iTunes if you search Brandywine Education. Uh, we also have a, 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 it's called Podbean. It's another link. If you don't do iTunes, you don't have Apple products. Um, but Christy puts it in the church e-news. I think just about every other week she puts the links to it, and I'll make sure she does again this week. So if you want to find, if you missed any of the weeks, you can track that down and listen to it if you want. I uh, uploaded the PowerPoint presentations from the weeks that people had them. If you look at it and go, there's nothing for week two, because you didn't have one. So uh, they're all on my Brandywine. So if you log on to my Brandywine and go to the summer series group, which if you've ever signed into the computer and said you're attending this class, you're in that group. If you don't know how to find it, call the church office. Not me. They're better at walking you through <laughs> how to get to that. But uh, all the different PowerPoint presentations are on there in PDF form, so you can download them. Uh, you know, for example, like a Dr. Bradstreet, his talk really dovetailed with his PowerPoints a lot. So if, if you're listening to it, it's really kind of nice to have the images that went along with that. Speaking of Dr. Bradstreet, uh, every year I do this. So uh, this is the third year in a row now where we've done kind of these summer series. I'm like, I'll take the last week. I'm not going to ask uh, somebody else to come in and talk on Labor Day weekend. And I'm like, it'll be fine. And then I spend the summer listening to all these people with doctorates and, and incredible expertise. I'm like, yeah, 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 no, no, this will be great. I'll wrap up after them. <laughs> uh, if, if you're not aware, like, my, my expertise is middle school dudes and fart jokes and the... Uh, I studied, you know, I have degrees in the Bible, history, youth ministry, and pastoral counseling. Uh, Although I will say, uh, when I was 10 years old, I tested in the top 3% for the country for science. So as long as we keep today at a third grade level, (laughs) I am ready. um, (laughs) One of the... uh, Things that I really enjoyed, last week we did a panel discussion. We had four people up here um, who uh, shared some of the things that they've been processing and working through and then also tackled a few questions that you guys had submitted the week before. The week before we asked for questions, you gave a ton of questions, uh, which was fantastic, and then we hit about four of them. And so if you're wondering what happens with the rest of them, um, I'm not doing them today, but... We'll just keep you in, in the suspense. But there was one thing, a reoccurring question that part of me got a kick out of, um, and, and now some of you will be offended if you're the ones that submitted it or even thought it. Uh, several people asked variations of, because in July, we had several different speakers tackling the opening chapters of Genesis. And the reoccurring question was, all right, so we've heard some fantastic speakers that have really made the case for a young earth or an old earth and uh, some things in between. And uh, so now we're just kind of curious, what's, what's Brandywine's official stance on this topic? And uh, 
Here's why I would say that. Uh, some of you have maybe heard us use the phrase, Pastor Nate, Pastor Todd, myself at different times, uh, that at our church we really like to uh, embrace uh, what some have called a generous orthodoxy. Or uh, Nate sometimes explains it as uh, some things that we hold in a closed hand and some things that we hold in an open hand. And it's this idea that there are some theological things, there's some doctrines, there's some principles that we go, yeah, we can't mess with these, right? Like these are foundational to what we believe. If you go on our church website, you can find them. They're, they're a statement of faith. And uh, it's just kind of a series of bullet points of this is what we believe about salvation. This is what we believe about God. This is what we believe about Holy Spirit, Jesus. That, you know, there's just a few foundational things that really impact the nature of salvation, the impact of how we know God, right? And, and for those things, we don't play around with those. Right? Like if you're going to be in leadership at this church, if you're going to be teaching in this church, these are some things you really need to sign on to that, yes, I believe these foundational doctrinal things about God, about salvation, about his church. But then there's also this whole realm of topics that we kind of say are kind of an open hand, that, that we might have a lot of theological conversation around them, but that they don't impact the nature of salvation. They don't impact the nature of God. That there's some passages in the scripture, I really love last week, Pastor Todd was kind of bringing up that point of, we don't know everything. And even the Bible, even though it teaches truth, doesn't cover all truth, right? It's, it's a specific message that God is communicating really at its core to reach us and teach us how to connect with him. And so some of these things that we debate about aren't part of that core message and purpose of Scripture. And uh, the challenge with this approach to generous orthodoxy, looking at some things with an open hand of, of like, Nancy can have one. She's like, oh, no, he's singling me out. Nancy can have an opinion on certain passages of the Bible, and I can have a differing opinion, and we would say that's fine because neither of us are addressing something that's the fundamental nature of God or salvation or the church, right? That, that there's some areas that we can still be united in spite of having a difference in interpretation. That's kind of one of these open-hand issues. And, and that was a long-winded way of saying those opening chapters of Genesis kind of fall into that category. That's why, as a church, we don't have an official stance. We don't say, to be a part of Brandywine, you must believe that the earth was created in this much time, or in this way, or in this... That, that's why we can, as a church, welcome different viewpoints to come into this class over the course of this summer. Each one of those speakers loved God. I hope that came through loud and clear to each of you the way it did to me, that each one of them are devoted to God, love God, have an absolute passion, have a depth of knowledge on the book of Genesis that probably very few, if any of us, have, uh, and yet they had very differing views on some of those things. In fact, some of them kind of, uh, the first uh, guy when he, with the Irish accent, when he came, um, I kind of laughed because he saw some of the upcoming speakers and topics and knew. And so I was like, I wonder if some of the, he kind of came at some of what he knew some of the others were going to teach, that they were kind of uh, almost um, debating with each other indirectly over the course of the weeks, right, to lay out some of these different things. And so 
part of the goal of the series this summer then, if it wasn't to give you like, this is what you should believe, was more of to tackle the question because this open-handed approach to some, uh, you know, this generous orthodoxy creates discomfort, especially for some, right? It, It can create awkwardness. It can create tension if Alex and I have differing opinions and, and so I'm like, well, what's wrong with you, Alex? The, uh, he's like, oh, man, why are you? The, um, it can create a tension, a discomfort. Of what do we do? Because especially when we wrap into it faith and religion, sometimes we get even more passionate than we would about other issues. And so part of the question that's been driving this summer is how can we be one body with differing and at times even conflicting views on theology, on some of these questions, especially in this realm of faith and science. Another question that's kind of driving this series, uh, one of the number one words that people outside of the church use to describe the church is judgmental. And whether or not that's accurate, that's the perception for many people. And how do we engage in these conversations in a way that builds bridges rather than builds walls. Um, Because this is one of those areas, maybe not our church specifically, uh, because if our church specifically was one of those ones that really reacted strongly and threw up walls, I probably would have gotten a lot of nasty emails over the course of the summer for some of the speakers that I brought in. And I've really appreciated the response and, and how people have kind of embraced this series. But the church in general has a reputation for handling things like faith and science very poorly, regardless of how accurate that is. Uh, When I was a freshman at Gordon College, uh, I was floored the first day of my Old Testament survey class. And just to give you a little bit of uh, context, by that time, I was 21 years old. I, I took a slower route to get to college. Um, by that point, I had kind of sworn off the faith. I had, I had left the faith several years before, uh, honestly, because I had grown up in very legalistic, demanding churches, and then even the mission that my family was a part of. Uh, it was very much a, if you questioned anything, you weren't just shot down. It was like, well, you're a bad, you're a bad person. Like, I, by the time I came out of those places, I just genuinely believed I'm a real troublemaker. And some of you are like, yeah, no, we, <laughs> we know that. But, but that I just kind of, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Because I would, we would have these classes, and, and sometimes you've even seen me do it from the pulpit when I look at a passage. And I'll just kind of take a time out for a moment and be like, can we all just admit what we read was really weird? Right? Because there's some things in the Bible that are really strange. And really extreme or sometimes shocking. And, and any kind of reaction like that was like, a, you got slapped down. And so I had grown up in this environment that was very harsh, that was very legalistic, that was very, if you don't believe anything we teach about the Bible exactly as we have taught it, then you have rejected God, you've rejected Scripture, you've rejected truth, you're an agent of Satan, like all of these kind of things. So I had left the thing. I was like, I, this is, I can't do this. And uh, I went to Gordon College, uh, partially to make my parents happy, partially because it was, it was close to them, but not too close. You know what I mean? It was like a 
two and a half hour drive. It was just far enough that I didn't have to go home on the weekend if I didn't want to. You know what I mean? So my first day of Old Testament survey class, uh, Dr. Elaine Phillips came out and started teaching on the opening chapters of Genesis. And on the first day, uh, she laid out four different major approaches that Christians take to creation. And uh, I was stunned because the, the idea that there was even more than one was shocking to me. I had only ever heard one growing up. And any question of it, like you didn't question it because then you're clearly a Satan-loving evolution embracing uh, agent of destruction. And so I didn't question it. And she went through these four different approaches that believers take to Genesis. Uh, Young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, God speaking in creation, God, like just a variety of different things. And, and, uh, and I was stunned and I'm like scribbling notes. And, and then uh, she gave the pros and cons for each one and then, she never told us which one we were supposed to believe. Uh, to this day, all the classes I took with her, even uh, some of the interaction we've had in the years past, I won't ask at this point. I don't want to know. I kind of enjoy the mystery. I have no idea what her, her stance is. right? And, and that blew my mind. And it was also the first step, the first kind of chink in my uh, walls against faith. I was like, Maybe I could be that kind of Christian, right? That, that embraces the conversation, that allows people to think and, and to process through and come to the conclusions they need to come to. And so that's, for me, a big part of what shapes what I was hoping we would do this summer, is kind of embrace the conversation, uh, learn more about how to talk about faith and science than to necessarily give the, here's what you must believe as a Christian. So what I would like to do today is actually spend a lot of time, you know, you're like, whoa, we're in tables this week. Uh, I would like us to spend more time interacting on our tables with me kind of telling you what to do uh, than so much me talking at you. And so there's some handouts in the middle of your tables. If you want to grab those, uh, don't skip ahead. The, uh, that would be cheating the system. Then I'll be bitter. I might not be able to see you, but Jesus can. <laughs> so you're like, oh, man. Um, here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, on, the, on the first part of it, there's a Venn, uh, Venn diagram. You can see it right here, two circles. And uh, on your paper, you see uh, one of them is labeled faith, one of them is labeled science. And then you have that middle section where they overlap. And what I'd like you to do is take a couple minutes, grab a pen or a pencil, uh, and individually or even together, but you're going to share it with each other. Just kind of write some words that come to mind when you think of faith in the faith circle, when you think of science in the science circle, and words that come to mind that could apply to both pop in the middle. You get what I'm saying? So just, I'm not looking for super deep answers. If I single you out to share what you put down, there's a good chance I won't make fun of you. I don't like to make too many promises, but uh, so just kind of words that come to mind when you think of faith, words that come to mind when you think of science, words that come to mind that could apply to both. You can work together, you can do it individually, take a couple minutes. All right.
Uh, let me just ask, kind of, just toss it out there. What kind of words, phrases, or ideas uh, were you guys seeing in the faith circle? On the faith side, what kind of things did you guys put down? Invisible, God, beliefs, mercy, love, what, what? the soul, abstract, can't be proven. Relational, sorry? I was going to say relationships. Relationships, personal. Sacrificial death. What kind of things did you guys put on the science side? Matter, energy. Medicine. Proof. Organized science. Scientific. A lot we don't know. Experiments. Understanding. <laughs> so many words at the same time. Data. What? Intrigue of knowledge. The tree of knowledge. Okay. I was like, anything else? What about in the middle? What you guys? What kind of words came to mind that you thought applied to both? God, creation, observations, nature, mysterious. People unexpectedly getting well. Spiritual. What? Answers. Somebody said something, and it was like three people said at the same time, so I didn't hear. Harmony. Truth. So what are some of the... um, Words... Were there some of the words that you just heard that kind of surprised you? People at your table popping things down or things that you thought or put or somebody put in a different one? What kind of things surprised you? Everybody's like, well, I don't want to call out the person next to me. They put down, I, it was, I wouldn't the, um. For you, as you've kind of processed it over this summer, what are some of the ways that you've seen faith and science overlap or seen the ways that they can feed into each other or integrate with each other? What were maybe some of the things that some of our speakers shared that you went, wow, I never thought about it like that or I can see how they inform each other in that way? Nothing. That's disappointing. <laughs> I was very impressed last week um, with uh, one of the gentlemen that was talking about how faith and science doesn't necessarily have to be compatible. Yeah. How do you feel about those, or as you're kind of processing? I use them, I use both of those, whether I'm spiritually searching or psychically. Yeah. I think our faith gives us a foundation for checking on the ethics of some of the stuff that's going on in science these days. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, that's one of the challenges, even that a lot of scientists will speak to. That sometimes what we can do and our knowledge goes at a rate faster than what. Or morality or ethics can keep up with. 
question, one, one comment that I had after last week was, you know, maybe we ought to see what the GMO stuff and mm -hmm. food is doing for a couple, for a couple of decades before we get into the other um, genetics. Yeah. I mean, but at the same time, if you think about it, when we, when we talk about food and food that's had its genetics modified, uh, we get alarmed at some of the really blatant forms of it. But the reality is most of our food has been modified. And so, you know, the corn that we eat today is nothing like the corn of a few centuries ago, right? Through selective uh, breeding and different things, they were able to change it to something more. Yep. Um, I think... Faith can give you a starting point in which to launch out into investigation. Hmm. Yeah. For, for I, you know, when you say that, some of you have heard me say this before because it's kind of one of my things that I constantly remind myself about the importance of humility in faith, right? And I really love that that came up last week. But I, we're so quick sometimes to judge the Pharisees and, oh, they were so evil. But, but for the most part, a lot of the Pharisees were people who... Uh, had you know, it was a tradition. They had studied the Bible for hundreds and hundreds of years. They had been looking at those prophecies and debating them. For uh, you know, those Pharisees literally had what we call the Old Testament today. Uh, they had it memorized, and they would sit around and debate it. They, they knew the scriptures inside and out in a way that probably none of us ever will. And yet, their arrogance—they were so convinced in their interpretation of the prophecies about the Messiah that they didn't recognize the Messiah when he was right in front of them. And, and sometimes, like, well, yeah, but they don't have the information that we have today. But we can, we can be just as arrogant as them. And that's the thing that scares me sometimes when we talk about great stupidity is, is uh, am I so convinced of my interpretation of Scripture that I could miss something God's doing right in front of me because I'm so entrenched in what I think it's supposed to be? Because... <laughs> There's a reality. I mean, there's no possible way that I'm the one that's figured it all out. As much as I want you to think it. <laughs> right? So, um, One thing that's me is that science itself is presented as being technically true. Sorry? Science itself is presented as being technically true. Yeah. yeah, And that's why it's so important, even for the scientific community, they want each other challenging each other's theories. You know, in the ideal sense, they're challenging each other's theories. They're working to make sure that the results they're finding are actually uh, accurate as possible. Let me 
Let me ask you to do this. If you look on your paper, discussion round two. It says, read Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and then discuss the following three questions. So if you guys could, at your tables, uh, if somebody has a Bible or look it up on your phone, um, read through that passage together and discuss those three questions together. Uh, and then in a few minutes, I'll bring us back to kind of share what we're seeing through that. All right. Now I've got you all deeply engrossed in conversation at your tables. Let me bring it back. <laughs> There's nothing like a bunch of questions that you really want to dive into, and then the. I know, right? So just to just to clarify one thing, I don't think the Apostle Paul is trying to tackle the subject of faith and science in this passage, right? That, that is not what he was wrestling with uh, from uh, back then. But I think there's some underlying principles in there that can help shape some of the big picture points that we've been uh, hoping to tackle over the course of this summer, right? Of how do we interact on this? Um, I think this question of what does it mean to lead a life worthy of your calling really gets back to, so what's our core purpose? What's our point? What is it that we're here for? And what kind of, what kind of answers, if there's somebody from different tables that wants to kind of share what your table thought, the answer to what does it mean to lead a life worthy of your calling is? You were... Yeah, so our relationship to others, to God, kind of that love God and love your neighbor. Um, who else? What else did you guys say about this question? My Alex. Guy, my guy had a really oh. All right, how about I saw Alex's hand, and then I'm going to come back to you guys. Do you say that again? All right, so kind of that our underlying purpose is to we're supposed to be sharing Christ with the world around us, and there's different ways that we do it, but that we're called to do that. What were you guys saying over here? Um, he mentioned uh, living a life of integrity and integrity. Mm. Uh, being authentic, genuine uh, commitment with the idea that in Scripture, Paul said, whatsoever you do, whatever your calling is, whether it's a clergy person, a physician, an engineer, an astrophysicist, whatever, whatsoever you do, do it as unto the Lord and do it wholeheartedly. Awesome. And if a person is doing that and they're living a life as uh, described in Scripture that God wants us to live, you know, not only are we going to do a great job in terms of uh, what we're doing as we do it for the Lord, but secondarily, we're also going to please those that we're working for. Yeah. It's, I thought Dr. Chen articulated some of that really well the other week of just kind of this idea that uh, your profession is part of God's calling to your life, right? It's not that we're a Christian when we're at church and maybe at home and then we go do our job thing and that's something else. It's, no, God has... God has placed us in all these employments for a purpose. You know, and that we're, you know, you guys kind of touched on it in different ways, but that we're called to reach the world around us. And maybe he's called you to reach the world around you through engineering or through teaching or through working at the gas station, whatever it is, or taking care of your children. You know, that 
that there's a variety of ways, but that wherever we are, God is ultimately, the, the real purpose, the real thing, is to connect the lost world with God. I saw a hand shoot up somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. That we can be worshiping God through, you know, when it talks about making your life a living sacrifice, that all that we do can be worship and service to God. So how do these verses, even though they're not directly about science and faith, right, but how do they impact how we approach the conversation around faith and science, science and faith? What kind of things did you guys think about that? I think statement you just made a moment ago about we're called to reach the world. I think we often interpret that as we have to save people. Mm. And that's not my job. There's only one Savior, and I'm not it. And uh, we're called to be witnesses, you know, to reach out and share what we know. But all I can tell is what I know from studying Scripture and what I've experienced in my life. And I will witness to that. Yeah. But my job is not to save you. That's God's job. I can tell you what I know, what I've experienced, why I think that's correct here. But yeah. you, you've got to make that decision with you. Absolutely. Well, I think the humility piece is huge because mm-hmm. just what you're saying, um, we can go ahead and live our lives with God Did I see your hand starting to go? I did not. <laughs> Patrick? I agree with you said about humility, and compared to y'all, I'm way more humble. <laughs> <laughs> I should have learned not to call on you after last week. <laughs> yep. In verse 2, it talks about forbearing one another, I mean, with all lowliness and meekness, long suffering. And the thing is, we were talking about how it means that we need to be patient, we need to listen to other people, and hopefully we're hoping that other people will listen to us. Yeah. But that we were looking at the word conversation. And the thing is, in that, you need to, you need to listen, you need to be patient with the other person. You can't just jump down their throat. Yeah, I was kind of looking at, like, one of the things that came through this passage to me was the importance of unity and loving each other, and, you know, as I was thinking about it in terms of this, 
you know, if, if my role, if my, one of my primary purposes is to be used by God to help bring people to him, uh, some of these other things that we get worked up about, and it's not just about faith and science then, right? It, it can be about politics. It can be about the economy. There's all these other issues that suddenly become, am I really going to build a wall between me and Craig because of political views or different ideas about science or, or whatever it is? Am I really going to build a wall between us over that and, and eliminate my chance to be used by God to reach God? Now, I, I believe Craig is saved, but... Right, but that's where part of me was being informed by this passage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let me, uh, I want to transition to the next thing. Um, I want to show you guys a couple of videos, getting back to the conversation of uh, how compatible or incompatible are faith and science. And uh, I thought this was kind of fascinating. I had a few different quotes, and then I have two video clips. Um, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, uh, says, science is a superhighway to atheism. Uh, Carl Sagan once said, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. Could there even be a reason to suspect there is more? Um, but then you have Lord Kelvin, who uh, thermodynamics, developed the Kelvin temperature scale. I'd uh, say, if you study science long enough and hard enough, it will force you to believe in God. Uh, I had two video clips I want to share with you. The, um, the first is uh, from Francis Collins, he headed up the Human Genome uh, Project. He's one of, uh, one of the more famous scientists uh, in the U.S., just an incredible mind. He's done incredible developments. And through science, he became a believer. But here was uh, some of the, when he tackled this question, here's what he had to say about it. Science is about trying to get rigorous answers to questions about how nature works. And it's a very important process that's actually quite reliable if carried out correctly with generation of hypotheses and testing of those by accumulation of data and then drawing conclusions that are continually revisited to be sure they're right. So if you want to answer questions about how nature works, how biology works, for instance, science is the way to get there. Scientists believe in that, and they are very troubled by a suggestion that other kinds of approaches can be taken to derive truth about nature. And some, I think, have seen faith as therefore a threat to the scientific method and therefore to be resisted. But faith in its proper perspective is really asking a different set of questions, and that's why I don't think there needs to be a conflict here. Uh, The kinds of questions that faith uh, can help one address are more in the philosophical realm. Why are we all here? Why is there something instead of nothing? Is there a God? Isn't it clear that those aren't scientific questions and that science doesn't have much to say about them? But you either have to say, well, those are inappropriate questions and we can't discuss them, or you have to say we need something besides science uh, to pursue some of the things that humans are curious about. 
for me, that makes perfect sense. But I think for many scientists, uh, particularly for those who have seen the shrill pronouncements from extreme views that threaten that what they're doing scientifically and feel, therefore, that they, they can't really uh, include those thoughts uh, into their own uh, worldview, uh, faith can be seen as, uh, as an enemy. And similarly, on the other side, some of my scientific colleagues uh, who are of an atheist persuasion are sometimes using science as a club over the head of believers, basically suggesting that anything that can't be reduced to a scientific question isn't important and it just represents a superstition and should be gotten rid of. Part of the problem is I think the the extremists have occupied the stage. Uh, those voices are the ones we hear. I think most people are actually kind of comfortable with the idea that science is a reliable way to learn about nature, but it's not the whole story. And there's a place also for religion, for faith, for theology, for philosophy. Uh, but that harmony perspective doesn't get as much attention. Nobody's as interested in harmony as they are in conflict, I'm afraid. The, um and I have a second video I want to share with you. Uh, you may have heard Neil deGrasse, deGrasse Tyson. He's probably the closest thing to a celebrity scientist uh, in the U.S. And he's very famous. He's an atheist. Uh, but he was asked about the same question, are faith and science incompatible? And he actually mentions a statistic in here about the percentage of scientists who are Christians um, that came up a lot in some of the different things I was reading. That the number he quotes is what is referenced in a lot of different places, um, which I found fascinating. But most religious people in America fully embrace science. So the the argument that religion has some issue with science, applies to a small fraction of those who declare that they are religious. They just happen to be a very vocal fraction, and so you get the impression that there's more of them than there actually is. It's actually the minority of religious people who reject science or feel threatened by it or, or want to sort of undo or, with, or, or restrict the, where science can go. The rest, you know, are just fine with science and has been that way ever since the beginning. And by the way, there's no tradition of scientists knocking down the door, the Sunday school door, telling the preacher what to teach. There's no tradition of scientists picketing outside of churches, nor should there be some emergent tradition of religious fundamentalists trying to change the curriculum in the science classroom. Been, there's been a happy coexistence for centuries. And for that to change now would be, would be unfortunate because I, I've seen this happen in other nations and other states where the consequences are that you just basically recede back to the cave because that's where you land when you undermine the scientific and technological innovations that come about when you're a properly trained, trained scientist or technologist. Consider also that in America, 40% of American scientists are religious. So this notion that there's some, um, that if you're a scientist, you're an atheist, or if you're religious, you're not a scientist, that's just empirically false. It's an empirically false statement. And what I mean by religious is, 
you can pose the question in a way that is unambiguous. You don't ask, well, do you go to church every Sunday? Because plenty of people go to church like just for the pie, you know, or, or the, the social scene after, after the service. You ask people, do you pray to a personal God? If you say yes to that, you're religious by, pre- by presumably anybody's standards of your, of, your, of your conduct. And it's the yes to that question that applies to 40% of scientists. So uh, while there are plenty of atheists who are scientists or not scientists, to paint this as some built-in conflict is – there may be a conflict, but many, plenty of people in this country – coexist in both worlds. The, um, what jumped out at you watching the videos? I know. I, what church did he check out? The, uh, <laughs> we do. We have a secret pie every week. Other pastors and I go and uh, share it. <laughs> what jumped out at you other than the pie? <laughs> Coffee. There's coffee. All right. What jumped out at you other than food and snacks? <laughs> Sorry? Who's... Do you want to enlarge on that a little bit more, the family social context? Yeah, I, it, it, what, what I thought I, I really liked, and maybe somebody was going to say it now, I've stolen it, is both of them, and Francis Collins, Collins is a really devout Christian. He's a, a, a leader and um, a prominent voice in, in the Christian community. Both of them kind of highlight that it's, it's a, a select, it's a very vocal minority on both sides. That kind of make paint the picture of tension and ugliness. That there's a there's a vocal minority of believers that are painting this as a as a combat, and there's a vocal minority of scientists that uh, you know. I even read some of the quotes. They're like, "No, nope, science eliminates that." And and uh, sometimes sometimes I think both groups get frustrated by the voices in their group. They're going, "No, they don't speak for all of us, right?" But that. Uh, when I was looking, because the first time I read that 40% number, I was like, is that, is that for real? And, and looking around, and that is a frequently articulated number, 40 to 50%, depending on the source you read, of scientists, in, you know, professional scientists in America are professing believers. And I love that Tyson, even though he's an atheist, so you know, some of his understandings of church are going to be limited anyways because that's not something he is engaged in. But I love that he even clarified that, right? Because you can ask the question, are you a Christian? And most of Americans will say yes. And, and for a bunch of them, we know they're looking at it's my genetic heritage. You know, I, it, my family is Protestant. I'm Catholic. I'm Jew. And they think of it almost more of an ethnicity than an actual practice. And he clarified it. No, this, this 40% are people that are praying devoutly to a God, like that this religious is, is something substantial uh, to them. So... I thought, yeah, the uh, the reaction to the number, it's a huge percentage. True. And Tyson, I mean, his goal wasn't norm- so much to break down what the faiths were. He was just more tackling the question of, are they incompatible? From his scientific standpoint, 
empirically, the evidence says no. If, if, if they were, how could almost half of the scientists in America be scientists? Yeah, I like um, J.I. Packer, a theologian, uh, said, uh, wrote at one point, it should be remembered that scripture was given to reveal God, not to address scientific issues in scientific terms. It is not for scientific theories to dictate what scripture may or may not say, although extra biblical information, so information discovered by science, will sometimes helpfully expose a misinterpretation of scripture. He's kind of driving home that point that Scripture reveals things about God, but sometimes we learn more about what God has done through studying the book of nature, as some of our speakers this summer have called it. Any other reactions? I ask for reactions, and then I keep talking. <laughs> Anything else jump out at you from the, the, their comments or the quotes? Absolutely. I had, uh, holy cow, I just saw the time. Oh, my goodness. What? I know, right? The, um, I want to share one last thought that I had, and I'll try to fly through it, and I think I can, but we'll see what happens. The... Um, uh, this uh, has come up, and sometimes people have used this as uh, a way to rationalize the two that they kind of, if you can see, um, almost kind of viewing the sum of knowledge as a pie chart, right? And that there's, uh, there's an, a certain amount that science can explain and the stuff science can, can't explain. Well, God did that. And uh, that's become a tougher question over the years, right? Because a couple centuries ago, it would have been, you know, this tiny sliver of here's what science explains because they didn't have much knowledge about the world, right? And, and most of it was attributed to God. And now as time is going on and science is seemingly able to explain more and more, the, the part uh, that people attribute to God is becoming smaller. And, and uh, I read, um, I believe it was John Walton. I really appreciated that one of the things that he said, the danger is we can't just keep saying what we don't understand is what God did. Right, because uh, what happens when an explanation comes up for it? It's like, oh well, we said God did that, but now they've come up with a scientific explanation for it, and it can, it can how we phrase it can rock people's understanding. That we need to have a you know a biblical understanding. We'll talk about how that God is is the orchestrator of creation; that He's involved in all of it; that that everything functions because God allows it. Uh, but as a scientific textbook, the Bible doesn't necessarily clarify. Here's steps one through seven, how God did this, how God ran that. Uh, for example, one of the ways that uh, this has been interesting to me uh, is, is explaining the origins of the universe in general, right? And so this has been a raging debate, especially over the last century. 
and there have been a lot of different theories. Uh, you know, the, the big one that a lot of people are kind of centered around is the Big Bang theory, that there was uh, this, that everything was condensed down to a tiny amount. It exploded out, and that's what formed the universe over a uh, billion, you know, they would, I think the estimates now are that uh, our universe is 28 and a half billion years old, give or take a decade. The, um, but even that has uh, been a conversation that has really uh, been debated over the years, right? Because uh, initially, uh, atheists and atheistic uh, scientists would look at this and go, okay, so a universe without God, uh, exploded. it couldn't just have been uh, never, uh, never any, that out of nothing came something, right? That, that there's a moment that this Big Bang occurred, but it couldn't have just been, like, what triggered it? Where did it come from? Why did it happen at that moment instead of a billion years sooner, a billion years later? There was, there's no, and to this day, there's no explanation for what triggered that initial, what triggered that initial singularity. Um, and so there have been a lot of different theories. And so one of the theories that happened for a long time was, you know, we've, we've got this evidence that, uh, that we think the universe started from a condensed thing, exploded into existence, and maybe perhaps uh, it exploded out, and then over time gravity pulls it back together, collapses back on itself, and it's just going through this never-ending cycle, right? And that's how you remove God from it. But here's where it got really fascinating for me. Um, in 1917... Albert Einstein, at that time, they just thought the universe was static. Everything was in place. Nothing was moving around, you know, other than planets around stars, but that solar systems were fixed where they were. And Albert Einstein tried to use the theory of relativity to prove the universe was static and unmoving. He couldn't make that work, which kind of blew some people's minds because it's like, wait, the universe is moving? In the 20s, uh, two different scientists separately came up with a theory of the imploding and exploding, uh, expanding universe cycle. That theory that it's just kind of cycling over and over and over. And so then they were like, okay, that explains it. That's how you remove God from the equation. Um, 1929, Edwin Hubble proved the universe was expanding. Up to that point, it was a theory. He was able to use, by studying the stars, he was actually able to map out, no, the universe is actually literally expanding. We are gradually spreading out farther and farther and farther. Uh, which for some then confirmed the idea that it must expand out and then eventually contract back in on itself, start the cycle over again. In 1970, Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking proved an initial cosmological singularity uh, that using everything we have... Um, they, they're the different pay grade than me. But they were able to prove to a lot of people's satisfaction that there must have been an initial cosmological singularity, that it's inevitable, uh, that there had to be a moment in time where it triggered. And so through that, uh, the idea that the universe was cycling was impossible with what they had proved. And so it was the first time that was really kind of this first step in saying, no, actually, it looks like the universe had a definite beginning moment and has been expanding ever since. In uh, 1998, uh, astronomical teams from Princeton, Yale, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysics Institute 
proved that our universe is not dense enough to ever create the gravitational pull to collapse back in on itself. Instead, the universe is constantly expanding. Here's why this is significant to me. Is uh, these different famous scientists, none of whom, I believe none of them, actually uh, believe in God, uh, over the course of their theories and studies, uh, the cumulative effect is that that for all intents and purposes, it's proof there is a beginning to our universe. There was a defined moment where it began. Uh, you know, they would attribute it to a Big Bang. And so for some Christians, they look at that and go, well, that's it. Because people still, there is no explanation or theory yet for how that initial singularity could have happened. Right? We can't fathom something that dense, uh, that kind of gravity. What triggered, you know, what was the thing that triggered the explosion to, to explode out. And so the temptation is look at that and go, well, that's the part where God did it. And, uh, and then we give all that credit to God. But, but our knowledge keeps expanding. I, uh, I'm so fascinated. Um, in the coming years, uh, in 2018, if you're paying, if you notice in the news, uh, there was the Parker Solar Probe was launched. It's named after physicist Eugene uh, Parker. It will travel within 4.3 million miles of the sun. It's the sun. It's going to study uh, solar patterns. It's going to study the corona. It's going to uh, come within 4.3 mile, million miles of the sun before it's burned up, destroyed. It's going to send it back, all sorts of information to us. It's going to be incredible uh, because up till this point, the previous record for getting close to the sun was uh, 26.55 million miles, which was set in 1976. So even at that distance, it was with 1976 technology that they were using to evaluate the sun. Now we're going to have five times closer uh, with 2018 technology. What's going to happen is that knowledge that we thought we were convinced of about the sun some of it's going to be disproved, and there's going to be new information that comes in. It's going to be incredible. Uh, it's just going to be a wealth of new resources. It's just like you know the, the difference between studying Mars from a distance and actually landing a rover on it that could test a few things and send a few things back. You know, and imagine what we'll be able to discover when we actually have a human set foot on Mars. And, and I say all that to say, we don't even know yet some of the stuff that we don't know about the sun. And that's going to be revealed. And, and what I was really challenged by, um, I'm pretty sure it was Walton who pointed this out, that we have to be careful how we speak about God when it comes to the unknown things. Right? That, that we can't just label, well, the singular, that was the part that God did. That, that God was the one that triggered. And you even kind of, whether you look at a, a young earth, six-day creation, or an old earth, a long, drawn-out, Either way, the language of Genesis 1-1 kind of sounds like, you know, God spoke and pff, there it was. Kind of sounds explosive in some ways. It just kind of exploded into existence. And so you could look at that, you know, and go, we know so much about the origins of the universe, but we don't know that piece. That's the part that God did. God pushed the button. God expo- you know, caused, triggered the Big Bang. And, and we feel happy because it's like, all right, I've, I'm still giving God credit for something. 
until 20 years from now or 15 years from now or 50 years from now when they come up with a theory that explains why it would have happened at that moment instead of before. And young people that have grown up in the church or even uh, us adults that have grown up and been taught, well, that's what we give credit to God for for decades. Suddenly it rocks our faith. Well, you know, if I always believed that was the part that God did, what do I do now? All the evidence is pointing to something else. See, it's all how we frame it. Right, because there can, they could potentially come up, they've come up with scientific explanations for things that people previously attributed, attributed to God's direct involvement. And the way that was phrased rocked people's faith. Now instead, as we look at it, we need to look at it and go, God is the orchestrator, God is the creator, God designed these systems that function the way they do that we don't know everything about yet. Right, that I loved one person used it as uh, an illustration that that how we approach some of these things should be kind of like bouncing on a trampoline versus building a wall. You build a wall and you pull out a brick or two, the thing can collapse. But if you're bouncing on a trampoline, maybe not me, and you take a spring out, the thing doesn't collapse, ideally, right? You can even swap around a few springs and you can still bounce. And they were saying, you know, some of these things, we need to be careful how we phrase it so that we approach it more like bouncing on a trampoline than building a wall. So that, as information changes, you know, like Packer said, as, although extra-biblical information will sometimes helpfully expose a misinterpretation of Scripture, we phrase it in such a way that it doesn't rock our faith instead of, challenging our faith to just grow and develop more. Am I articulating that well? It it all makes sense in my brain, but then sometimes I get in front of people. I've gone over in a shocking turn of events, and we didn't even get to the backside of your paper, so you can take that home and argue with each other about that in the hallways. Can we close in prayer? (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the conversation that we've had today. Uh, We ask that you'd help us to be more and more like you. As we navigate these topics, as we uh, navigate a culture um, that has some fundamental differences in belief and, and thought, as we do, but help us to do so in a way that builds bridges instead of creating walls. In your name, amen.